Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. I'm John Worsey, and here at the University of Portsmouth, we work on sharing amazing research, breakthroughs, and cutting-edge science with the world. Much of our research is informing and exploring the way we live today, including our cultures and society. Today, we're returning to our conversation around fairness in football. The World Cup, Euros and Championships unite nations across the world, as well as communities, counties, regions and states. And it plays a crucial role in the cultural and economic identities that exist therein. But the financial state of football is far from healthy, and financial mismanagement or corruption can have devastating impacts. If a club goes into administration and their wages don't get paid, that is a problem. This time, we'll reveal some surprising truths about football's shaky accounting. Just how financially stable are the clubs at every level of the game? And we'll ask how it might be possible to eliminate corruption for good. If sport can add to and amplify behaviours and attitudes throughout a wider society, then the way it's financed and regulated is absolutely crucial in making it fair for everyone internationally. Dr. Adam Cox and Christina Filippo share their insights. My name is Christina Filippo. I am a principal lecturer here and my background is as an accountant, fun times, but most of my research revolves around the interesting side, which is sport finance and, uh, and corruption. My kind of practical experience is around investigations in corruption, fraud and regulatory investigations. And then when I came to Portsmouth and I had to actually do some sort of uh, research, I've always been a, a big sports fan. I've watched sport all my life. I've played sport all my life. I now coach sport. So it kind of made sense to put the two together. And it's actually been very interesting, but also rather depressing, I have to say. <laughs> Christina's been unearthing a darker side to sport in the hope that governance, policymaking and practices can be cleaned up. A lot of the stuff around bribery and corruption in sport is, is not happy reading, right? I mean, there, there's, there's been quite a bit of movement over the years. So one of the pieces of research I did is I looked at policies between 2017 and 2020, and there has been some movement there, like positive movement. FIFA and tennis particularly have made leaps and bounds in terms of preventing corruption and bribery. But there's still so many issues in terms of conflict of interest, in terms of whistleblowing, in terms of confidentiality. And ultimately, what that means is money comes out of sport that is supposed to go towards things like development, towards things like grassroots, and it goes into people's pockets. Working with Christina on various projects is Dr. Adam Cox, He's also concerned with the economic and commercial practices that can impact the rights of sports people and their fans. I'm Adam Cox. I'm a reader in economics. My interest in sports economics really started off with taking a look at the way that the Premier League collectively sells its broadcast rights, as opposed to allowing the clubs to compete against each other to, to sell those directly. And that really led very quickly into really interesting problems around competitive balance, restricting the number of matches on TV, spending on players' wages, and then more, more recently into club finance during economically turbulent times. Hold on one second. This is already going quite fast for a non-economist. 
Let's start with broadcast rights. How does a broadcaster play a role in how clubs compete? One of the most important features for me was trying to get a handle on the reasons why the Premier League was collectively selling broadcast rights. And in doing so, it was restricting the number of matches that were shown on television in the UK live at the same time as matches. There was a real fear, perhaps, from the Premier League that if you show too many matches on television, people will stop coming to the stadium to look at. So I started researching this as part of my PhD, trying to estimate the decrease in a stadium attendance every time a match is broadcast, which turns out to be not a lot. People are really, those people that go to the stadium are really keen to go to the stadium. And then I really wanted to understand how competitive balance works in, in that. So what I mean by that is if you have a very strong team winning every single match every single week, does that just become boring to watch because the outcome becomes more predictable? So if you have more evenly balanced teams, does that then increase the demand for spectating? And actually, I found quite an interesting nuance where it differs depending on the type of person watching. So whether they're watching at the stadium or at the TV, those going to the stadium really do prefer the opposite to those on TV. So a much more balanced match between two closer teams tends to draw more of a crowd for television viewers. And those going to the stadium much prefer either when they're more like their team is more likely to win or when there's an opportunity for a bit of a giant killing uh, and maybe maybe sort of Portsmouth beating Manchester United. Fascinating insights into fan behaviour there. So surely where they choose to invest their attention is where the money is spent. Let's get back to that piece of research Adam and Christina have been collaborating on. They've been looking at the resilience of club finances during the boom and bust of recessions. Well, finances was one of the things that, that really took me by surprise. It led me into looking at players' wages. The finance thing, when working with Christina, is, is such an insight. Because from an economist's point of view, I don't always understand what's going on on those balance sheets. That's why I'm there. That's why I'm there, Adam. That's why you're needed. Adam and I have been you know, doing some work looking at resilience. We're looking at various aspects of the finances now and, and some kind of research we're doing at the moment. And it all kicks up really interesting things that you would not see in normal industries, I think it's fair to say. I had the idea that the big six clubs, so the, the ones that feature towards the top of the, the Premier League season after season, would be absolutely fine. And that's not what we found at all. In fact, it's only Arsenal out of those bigger clubs we found, uh, according to our measures, to be really resilient to these economic turbulences. Um, there were a couple of other clubs in there, but they were clubs you wouldn't expect, perhaps, such as Coventry City and Derby. It was a really interesting piece of work because it laid out bare the, the finances of, of all the Premier League clubs over the period. And we, we started looking at the balance sheets going back for, to the beginning of, of the Premier League uh, back in 1992. I knew broadcast revenues were really important from the work I'd done previously, and they've grown significantly over this time period. But importantly, it's changed from, from around about contributing to, a, to about a quarter of a club's revenue to being more like about 60% or so of club revenue. So there's a much greater reliance on 
broadcast rights revenues as opposed to commercial and matchday revenues than ever before. That stat itself has been helpful for Premier League clubs who saw an impact on stadium numbers as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, you've got matchday revenue, which is the people going in there and the various kind of bits that kind of involved with that, not just tickets, but general. You've got broadcast revenue and then you've got the commercial side. So things like sponsors and that aspect and those are the three significant revenue streams for for football clubs. But even with this massive growth in, in revenues, if you take a look over the Premier League's existence up to, we stopped looking at the, the statements up into the latest we had at the time, which is 2018, there's a collective debt of over a billion. Yes, you heard that right. A debt of over £1 billion is not a healthy sounding number for a game that generates enormous revenue and holds such a revered place in our culture. So what's going on? It is all to do with spending. There's been an increase in money coming in through the broadcast revenues. So this is about how much has been spent. Trying to get a handle on why and how people are spending. What we're sort of trying to look at next is sort of dive in a little bit deeper in terms of changes within the clubs and externally to see how those kind of changes affect what's happening within the finances. Looking at at club profit over that time period, Every time a new broadcast deal was announced, a renewal of this broadcast, which happens sort of every three years or so, depending on on the period, we saw this sort of small increase in profit and then a significant drop. And that's a feature of the nature of the way the league is organised. So it's through relegation promotion, which is a fantastic feature of football in the UK, there is this element of competitiveness and this desire to really overstretch financial resources in order to spend on players to perform on the pitch. And that's what we see through the work that we did is, is this overreaching of the financial resource as, as we're, we're going into an economically positive climate and the ability to, to whether we, that can be reined in in periods of recession. All we needed to see was a drop of, say, 20% in those broadcast revenues in one season and 13 out of the 20 clubs would make a loss that season. And that particular one was the last season we looked at in our research and it changed the total league profit from 470 million profit to 100 million loss just by that blip in broadcast revenues. So it could make a significant difference right across the board if we saw, for example, less people tuning into the television to watch football matches. But there are barriers to fully understanding the details of individual club accounts which is a challenge for this ongoing piece of research. All companies in the UK have to publish accounts and they have to basically put them into Companies House, which is a repository, and that's free. You can access the accounts. The problem is, one, how accurate those accounts are, because a lot of football accounts are not audited, which means there is potential that they're not 100% accurate. We don't know. We're assuming they're accurate. And then the other issue is there are a couple of clubs that fall short of their statutory requirements and don't actually file accounts when they should do. And then if you're looking kind of further down the leagues, if you're not making much money, you can take advantage of an exemption that exists in the law whereby you don't have to publish your revenue 
um, aspect. So you're what we call like an income statement. So with the money coming in and the money going out, you need to publish a balance sheet, but you don't need to have a, a breakdown of what traditionally was called a profit and loss account. So that also creates problems if you're trying to look at what's happening and get a full picture of where the money is coming from and going. This issue also feeds into a wider piece of work that Christina's looking into. As an accountant, she's concerned with financial control problems like bribery, as well as the financial state within football as a whole. But her research also extended to other sports too. Rather than looking at clubs, I kind of looked at the sports governing bodies, so the ones at the very top of the pyramid, so the FIFAs of this world or the International Tennis Federation and things like that. Basically, I looked at, at two aspects. I looked at policies, so what existed there to stop corruption of a financial nature. The other aspect is I interviewed loads of people on their on their perspectives. So I spoke to three groups of people. I spoke to sports governance officials. I spoke to people that worked in sports, so people that worked in clubs and athletes and, and journalists and things like that. And then I spoke to anti-corruption specialists, and I got all their views on what the problems are in sport and how potentially we could move on from that. The standard stuff was around transparency and accountability. So there's loads of areas whereby you don't know what's happening within an organization, which is supposed to be a public organization that is you know, supposed to be looking after the sport for everybody. And you don't have access to what's happening, what decisions are being made, on what basis the decisions are being made, where the money's going to, how the money is controlled. There's also massive issues around monitoring. So how do you monitor where the money is going to and that kind of audit process? Lots of problems around bidding, which, which we've seen with various scandals in terms of who controls it, is there any independence in the process, how it works. And whistleblowing was the other big issue. And that, I suppose, kind of links in back nicely with the financial stuff, because that's a more general issue. If you don't have somewhere where you can report things that are going wrong, where that be that issues around the finances or issues around corruption or issues around fraud, or then that is problematic across the board. And we still have massive issues around that, around confidentiality of people who report who you report to because obviously if you're reporting into and very often you see this in a lot of sports organizations that basically the last word goes to somebody on you know the board or the council or the whatever and you're reporting on them <laughs> well that's a massive conflict of interest you know because if if Adam is trying to report on me and he's reporting to me then that's that's problematic and unfortunately you still see a lot of that Christina says it's not all doom and gloom, though, and that organisations have shown progress in increasing transparency and accountability, as well as bringing in controls around bids for large sport events, for example. The problems that we currently see are not going to fix themselves in a free market. The clubs are not going to curtail their own spending because they're going to end up losing on the football pitch. And they do that, they're in jeopardy of then losing the fan base, etc., etc., and potentially getting relegated, which means less future income. So we need some governance to step in. So it really paves the way to say there has to be some rules or some kind of governance that really is the way forwards. What, what it doesn't do is, is tell you exactly how 
but it does set the groundwork for it. Yeah, and there's lots of different aspects to it as well. So in the UK, for example, you've got the FA, which looks over the the national game and and grassroots. Then you've got the Premier League, the EFL, and the National League, who all look after themselves. There's gaps between them where you know certain instances can fall between the cracks. There's the issue of you know back to the kind of financial side of things. If people are regulating themselves. That is a problem from a governance perspective. And improved governance could be key in addressing these systemic issues to the game. In November last year, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport published its fan-led review into the state of football and found that as football has grown, its structures have remained stuck in the past. This report recommended improvements in governance as well as regulation and even proposed that a new regulator should be established. For Christina and Adam, the research needs to look more deeply into the finances of smaller clubs. Our work so far has just looked at the Premier League and, and part through ease of access to the, to the data as in the financial statements. But really we're seeing probably some of the more problematic issues with financial stability lower down the league. So I think there's a real big piece of research that needs to be done there that, that is currently kind of lacking, I think, still from an academic and even practitioner perspective. Few clubs have actually completely disappeared. So quite often this type of work comes against the challenge of, so what? You just change owner, a one owner in debt walks away, sells the club at a loss perhaps to the next owner. But the fans are still satisfied because they still get to follow their football team. Yeah, but all the suppliers and all the, all the little guys that have provided those services lose out. That's the point. Every time somebody talks about an administration, they go, well, the club's still standing. Yeah, but how many businesses have you put into their own dire straits because you are not paying the bills? Even with footballers, people talk about footballers like they're earning you know, millions. And yes, if you're looking at the kind of Premier League level, they are earning a lot of money, but you kind of go further down the leagues and there's a lot of people who are just making a living. And if they're not getting paid their wages, that is a problem. And if a club goes into administration and their wages don't get paid, that is a problem. Adam says there could be enormous benefits to our local communities in clearing up the systemic financial issues of the game. A stronger financial position for each individual club might allow quite naturally an increase in their community activities, whether that be directly or through perhaps more elite clubs passing money down to lower leagues and grassroots levels. And that combined, I think, provides a really strong argument for the gaps in the research that we're talking about. The journey towards making football fair and financially fit for the present day is well underway. Thanks to research and investigations, we can understand more deeply the issues that exist and how they're impacting people at every level with every relationship to the game. You can find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth at port.ac.uk slash research and find links to all the studies we've mentioned there. If you've found this episode thought-provoking, we'd love to hear from you. Share it on social media with the hashtag LifeSolved or perhaps just send it to a friend. And if you have a moment, please do rate, review and follow this podcast on your app so that more people like you can join the conversation. See you again next time.